Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies, where we, every single episode, dive into the stories and the players and the legends that make up the mythology of baseball and have made this the game that we love so much. My name is Daniel Port, and I am excited to have you here with us today. As it's February, and that makes it Black History Month, and as every year I like to take during Black History Month and shine a spotlight on some lesser known or less talked about African-American players who had a huge impact in Major League Baseball and in baseball history in general. And it's necessarily easy to go in the direction of talking about Jackie Robinson or things like that. And obviously those players should be talked about, but you can go all over the internet and see this time of the year. Incredible, uh, fantastic Jackie Robinson stories. And eventually I'm going to get to telling Jack Robinson story here on this podcast, but I want to talk about a lesser known or less talked about African-American player who I feel like had a huge impact on the history of Major League Baseball. And if you'll bear with a uh, former theater major here, I'd like to make an analogy. So we've all seen the movie Spartacus, or at least most of us have heard of or seen the final scenes of the classic Kirk Douglas movie. Now, In the aforementioned scene that I'm talking about, the Romans have captured and confronted the members of a slave rebellion led by a man named Spartacus. The Romans give the captured slaves an ultimatum. Give up Spartacus and they all live. Otherwise, they all die by crucifixion, which is decidedly an awful way to go out. After a moment of steely resolve, Spartacus rises to give himself up to save everyone, but is beat beat to the punch by the guy next to him, who stands and declares that he is Spartacus. Then another member of the crowd repeats the gesture and declares that he is Spartacus. And in a truly stirring moment of cinema, one by one, the entire group is soon standing, declaring they are really Spartacus, refusing to let him stand alone. It's really an incredible thing to watch. When I had first seen it for the first time, I'd never seen anything quite like that. Now, most analysis of that scene focuses on Spartacus, but mostly I've always been fascinated by the the second and the third guy who stand up, right? Those, those, those are the interesting ones to me. And that second guy, in case you're curious, is named Antonius in the movie. But that character, played by Tony Curtis, is listed at the very bottom of the main cast list. Yet, somehow that's the character that sits with me. He's the guy who told the potential martyr that he would not stand alone. And that character is mostly forgotten by the viewers. Heck, I had to look up the dude's name. But his impact is of a different but equal importance to Spartacus's. The moment Antonius stands up and declares himself as Spartacus, the titular character's cause becomes a movement that, that, that it won't be squashed. Uh, and that's always fascinating me, that thought process. And, and to bring this long-winded and probably heavy-handed analogy to a close, I've always been fascinated by the second guy who stands up and supports the first of any movement of any cause. And when you're telling the story of African-Americans in Major League Baseball, the role of Antonius to Jackie Robinson Spartacus was a man from South Carolina named Larry Doby. And for the record, let me state that Jackie's incredible. You can't tell the story of uh, baseball and of African-Americans in baseball without Jackie Robinson. He broke the color barrier. There's just no topping Jackie's importance. But if you ask most people, including a lot of baseball experts, who was the second African-American player in Major League Baseball, many of them wouldn't know the answer. And I think that's travesty. You know, I, th- I think it's important, not only that Jackie broke the color barrier, but that someone else stood up and made sure he didn't stand alone. Jackie Robinson took a stand against racism in Major League Baseball, and Larry Doby is a big reason why that cause became a movement that wasn't going to go away. And as you'll see later in this podcast, he endured no end of harassment and grief and racism from not only the fans, but his fellow players in order to make that happen. And, and that's just scratching the surface of his cultural impact before we even get into how good of a player he was, because he was actually pretty darn good. Across his 17-year career, he put together a solid 56.8 war, which was impressive considering he lost over five years of major league numbers between playing in the Negro Leagues, where we don't have a lot of official statistics, and also serving his country in 1945. One thing to keep in mind, though, as we go through Doby's big picture numbers is that they can be misleading due to the time period that he played in. 
for example, Doby has a career 888 PS, which might feel a bit low by the standards of a modern superstar. But that all changes when you take it into consideration that this is the 1940s and he had a 140 OPS plus for his career. Suddenly you see that in a whole new context. And so it's important to keep in mind the era that he's playing in. His career 273 home runs might feel a bit light for a Hall of Famer, but you'd be wrong. Think of it this way. The main chunk of his Major League Baseball career ran from 1947 to 1958. And over that time period, his 261 home runs was ninth in the league. He was also 8th in runs, walks, and RBIs over that time period, and 6th in war. The only players ahead of him in war over that time period were Stan Musial and Ted Williams with 83.1 and 78.6 war, and Mickey Mantle, in his prime, barely beat him by 6 war. Jackie Robinson himself was only 1.8 war ahead of him, and Duke Snyder was 0.9 war ahead. That's it. That's pretty good company to be in over that time period. That's how good Larry Doby was as a player. In addition, he was a nine-time All-Star while winning both an MLB and Negro League World Series. And to wrap up his career numbers, he had 1,697 hits with 1,081 scored and 1,099 RBIs to go along with a 288, 389, 888 slash line while playing in 1,674 games. By the way, that means he had over a hit per game for his career, given that 1,697 hits with 1,674 games played. That's pretty cool and quite impressive. And again, if you feel like those numbers are pretty sparse, keep in mind that this sells Adobe quite a bit short as he spent four years in the Negro Leagues, and we really don't fully know what numbers he put up during that time period. And we genuinely have very little record of those numbers in those time periods. We saw the same thing when we talked about Josh Gibson and Satchel Page, and it's really a shame because we really don't quite know just what Adobe put over up over his career because of that. Now, even with that in mind, it's clear he was one of the best hitters of his generation, and he did, did, did all this under what at best could be described as hostile circumstances and at worst a danger to his health and well-being. I can't imagine doing much of anything under the threat of, well, death threats. But uh, somehow these guys, he and Jackie, managed to play baseball <laughs> at the highest level while getting death threats and, and being knowing that they could be harmed for just for playing baseball and being black. And I, like, I just, I don't think I'd be able to, like, read the newspaper <laughs> knowing that. It's worth keeping that in mind as well. Now, with that being said, like so many of the stories surrounding the beginnings of the players from the Negro Leagues, like Satchel Page or Josh Gibson, as I just mentioned, there certainly was an air of folklore and myth to Larry Doby's start in baseball. And frankly, the history of baseball is all the more interesting for it, even if it certainly contains quite a bit of ugliness in that story. And I'll do my best here to try and be true to both that ugliness and that which overcomes that situation and finds their place in history, much as Doby and Robinson did. But to tell the story of Larry Doby, you have to start back in the beginning, as we always do here on this podcast, and, and discuss where Doby came from and how it started his journey into baseball. Now, first, though, as we always do, we'll take our first break here and get it out of the way. And once we paid some bills, we'll come back and tell the story of the first African-American to play in the American League and Cleveland legend one Larry Doby. Welcome back. Lawrence, or Larry, Doby was born in 1923 in Camden, South Carolina to David and Etta Doby. Even before Larry was born, baseball was a part of his story, as the legend goes that his father met Etta playing baseball in the street outside of her home, which, again, just feels, okay, this is destined to be a baseball story. Now, unfortunately, the storybook start to their relationship would not continue, as their relationship after Larry was born was reported to be tumultuous at best, and Doby would mostly be raised during his youngest years by his grandmother. Now, his father would die in a fishing accident when Larry was just eight years old. And this was a, a formative thing in Larry's life. It, it would often affect the directions he would take in his career and many of the relationships that he had throughout his career as he got older. But he would bounce really during this time period between his aunt and his uncle before eventually moving with his mother to New Jersey. Now, he was left mostly on his own in New Jersey as his mother had to work to keep him afloat. 
And this would also have a huge effect on Doby throughout his career. Um, many teammates and detractors would describe him as being like aloof or quiet and separated from the group. And Doby would often describe this later on in his life as because he was left alone so much as a child, he learned how to be self-sufficient and how to be uh, sort of a little more independent in that way. And one of the big ways he was able to, to do that and to fill a lot of those voids was through sports. He was a letterman in baseball all throughout high school, and in fact, lettered in three other sports as well. Given that his dad was actually a semi-pro ball player, that was a clear goal for, for young Lawrence as well. Now, originally he had planned on finishing high school and becoming a coach or a phys ed teacher while pursuing his baseball dreams, but opportunity would actually come knocking much sooner than anticipated, as before he even graduated high school, he was already being recruited and would end up playing second base for the Newark Eagles in the Negro Leagues before he even got to wear a tassel and a gown, which is just incredible. Again, I... I remember being a high schooler and I could barely tie my shoes and, and talk to girls and just remember my homework, let alone going and playing professional baseball at one of the highest levels in the world. And it's worth noting again, as I've said many times when talking about, whether it's talking about baseball over in Asia or in other countries or the Negro Leagues, I consider them all, for the purposes of this podcast, to be of equal talent levels. And to be not even, basically being 18 years old, and already playing professional baseball, that's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I, like, I, my brain can't even comprehend it. So we would just wouldn't see that today. And it's just nuts. Because again, also, for the record, he's skipping the minor leagues at that point. He's not even playing in the minors, which we've seen 18 or 19-year-olds do sometimes. He's skipping all of that. Now, again, we don't have a ton of numbers for his time in the Negro Leagues. So understand that he, he likely played far more games than the 23 games we have on record. But in 1942, at the age of 18... He, while playing under the pseudonym Larry Walker, which I find like a fascinating sort of like roundabout that we would later get a Hall of Famer Larry Walker as well. The barely adult Larry Doby hit 309 with a 796 OPS, which is good for a 133 OPS plus with a home run, 14 RBIs and 18 runs scored uh, again across 23 games. And Doby has claimed in his memoirs and whatnot that he hit close to 400 across the season. We just don't have the records for it. So uh, not too shabby for a high schooler. He would enroll at Long Island University to play baseball and basketball because it's worth noting he was also a star basketball player. And that would continue throughout much of his career. Even once he started turning over to professional baseball, he would often approach opportunities to play basketball as well. He also met his sweetheart and eventual wife, Helen Curvy. Yes, you heard that right. Once again, it's the perfect name for a baseball story, and I love it so much. Now, throughout his college years, he would continue playing in the Negro Leagues to great success. Eventually, he would transfer to Virginia Union College to play basketball with the goal of joining an ROTC program and avoiding the draft. Unfortunately, it wasn't in the cards, and at the end of the 1944 basketball season, he was indeed drafted into the Navy. Luckily, he wouldn't see combat, but ended up finding a role as a physical education instructor in Chicago at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station. While there, he would try to keep up his baseball skills, but it did mean the loss of his age 21 season, as he would not play in the Negro Leagues either that year. Upon being honorably discharged from the Navy in 1946, Doby would return to the Newark Eagles, where he plays in 59 games, has a fantastic season, 365 with a 437 OBP and a 1.030 OPS, which is good for a 186 OPS+. plus. Again, he's 22 at this point, right? He would go to both All-Star games that year, and the Eagles would actually take down the Kansas City Monarchs that year in the Negro League World Series. The Monarchs were about as big as it comes in the Negro League, so this was a huge thing to achieve. To play the Monarchs in the World Series, Doby later exclaimed, they had Satchel Paige and all those guys. That was a great team. To beat those guys, you were in the upper echelon of baseball. And this isn't the last time he would encounter Satchel Paige. They actually play later on in their professional careers, but that's putting the cart before the horse again here. So that's a fun little anecdote. Now, there are many who had suspected that he would be the first player to break the color barrier, but Jackie Robinson beat him by about three months. Now, at the time, Dovey had never really considered the idea that he could pursue baseball as a full-time career, but said that seeing Jackie getting signed by Branch Rickey of the Dodgers inspired him to go for it. He said, my main thing was to become a teacher and a coach. 
But when I heard about Jackie, I decided to concentrate on baseball. I forgot about going back to college. And this is where Bill Veck and Cleveland come into the picture. Now, as you all know, I'm from Cleveland. I probably bring it up at least once a podcast. As most people from Cleveland do, you can't encounter any of us without us telling you we are from Cleveland. But uh, I do think it's actually important to understand a little bit about Cleveland at the time. During and around the time of World War II, the U.S. experienced what was historically called the Second Great Migration, which was when large populations of Southern African Americans moved to the Midwest and Northeast looking for work. And being one of the largest steel towns in the country, much of that migration happened in the Four City, as we like to call Cleveland. Now, according to the census at the time, in the 1940s, Cleveland's African American population was around 20% of the city's demographics. So you're talking about a newer population looking to find their footing in a new city. And the way I had always heard the story told when I was growing up, it was a situation really primed for an icon to root for. Because I grew up hearing about Larry Doby, and you hear him talk about him broadcast all the time. The radio would talk about him all the time. And this is what I always heard was that this was a, a, a situation and a grouping of people looking for, I, I suppose, representation and someone to, to root for. Now, Cleveland uh, Indians, they were the Indians at the time. Owner Bill Vack had long wanted to integrate the American League. And with Doby at the height of his notoriety, Vec thought this was the perfect opportunity to get it done. Now, Vec, uh, just to do a little sidebar here, I know it's not a Bill Vec episode, and maybe one day we'll have to do one, was a true character for better or for worse. I could literally do an entire episode on Bill Vec quotes alone. This is a man who has been quoted as having said, The true harbinger of spring is not crocuses or swallows returning to Capistrano, but the sound of the, ball, the bat on the ball. And he said, There are only two seasons, winter and baseball. The most beautiful thing in the world is a ballpark filled with people. But on the other side of it, while he'd wax poetically about baseball, he was also cool as saying, look, we play the Star Spangled Banner before every game. You want us to pay income taxes too? Or, I try not to break the rules, but merely to test their elasticity. And if this is a guy who was actually referred to as the P.T. Barnum of Major League Baseball, he's famous for trying a, a sub-four-foot uh, batter out. He's done everything from like, exploding scoreboards to uh, you name it. Bill Vec tried it in Major League Baseball. He's a fascinating character. But all that aside, he was also an avid and open opponent of segregation in baseball. Now, legend has it that worst commissioner ever, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, had blocked him from buying the Phillies years before because he was open about his plans to desegregate the team. In 1942, Vec co-owned the Brewers, which back then was a triple-A team, and he would sit in the colored section of the stands during spring training in Ocala, Florida, to get to know the fans, which caused quite a ruckus in the then-segregated town. And when they requested that he respect the laws of the town and segregation, he threatened to leave town with the team and never return. Vec simply didn't have any patience for racism. What offends me about prejudice, Vec wrote in his autobiography, is that it assumes an unwarranted superiority. In 1946, though, Vec would finally achieve his dream of purchasing a major league team, becoming the owner of the Cleveland Indians, and goal number one from the moment he took over the team was breaking the color barrier in the American League. He hired a man named Bill Kelfer to scout the Negro Leagues and find the perfect candidate, to do, and he hired Lewis Jones as his PR director, who was then the first black MLB executive in history, to prepare the city leaders of Cleveland for the team to start signing black players. They found the perfect candidate in Larry Doby. The plan was for Doby to play in the Negro Leagues for the 1946 season, which would end right around the MLB All-Star Game. And as we mentioned, Doby was fantastic that season, and coming off of having just won the Negro League World Series, his star couldn't have been shining any brighter. Even with that, though, Vec knew it would not be easy for Doby. To quote Doby himself, when Mr. Vec signed me, he sat me down and told me some of the do's and don'ts. He said, Lawrence, he's the only person who called me Lawrence, you are going to play part of history. Part of history? I had no notions about that. I just wanted to play baseball. I was young. I didn't quite realize then what all this meant. I saw it simply as an opportunity to get ahead. Mr. Vec told me, no arguing with umpires. 
Don't even turn around on a bad call at the plate and no dissertations with opposing players. Either of those might start a race riot. No associating with the female Caucasians. Not that I was going to. And he said to remember to act in a way that people are watching you. And this was something that both Jack and I took seriously. We knew that if we didn't succeed, it might hinder opportunities for other Afro-Americans. Think about that for a second. I mean, simply arguing a call uh, could incite a race riot. That's how big the stakes were at the time. That is what Dobie was encountering every single game. It wasn't just that he had to be good or that he had to be on good behavior. He had to be perfect. He had to be on his best behavior at all times. And that that, that can't have been easy, it, especially for a, a 22-year-old man. I, I can't even imagine. I really genuinely can't even imagine what that had to be like. And it definitely wasn't easy. Much like Jackie Robinson encountered, Dobie would have to stay in different hotels or eat in other places from the rest of the team. And you can imagine he endured no end of horrific comments from the stands. And according to the writer Shakia Taylor, in a piece she wrote for Fangraphs back in 2018 about Dobie, opposing players often spit in his face as he slid into second base. So it wasn't just the fans who were mistreating him, but even his fellow players, which today feels like it goes against some sort of unwritten code, but back then was just business as usual. All for just being black and wanting to play professional baseball. I like, I, I it just, oh, it makes me just so angry uh, even to think about it and what it must have been like and when you start to think about it it was only what 80 years ago it's not that far away and we hear these stories and we start to wonder why sometimes even black players today still will say that they don't necessarily feel as if baseball is the most inviting sport in the world it's a lot to overcome and we're still working towards it but it just it just it eats at me to know that this was part of our history and if we're being honest, it's probably just scratching the surface of what Dobie encountered, again, at the young age of 22, in his rookie year and beyond. And he did say in his memoirs he was a bit prepared, uh, that he wasn't caught completely off guard by it, because the Navy had also been segregated. And the, that had also rubbed him the wrong way. But that whole season just had to have been isolating and demoralizing, and frankly, just a, a weight and trauma no person should have to bear. And given all that, it's not surprising that Dobie struggled in his first season, playing in 29 games, I think starting just a handful of them, and getting just 33 plate appearances. He hit 156 with no home runs, definitely had, had a, a bit of a struggle to get started. And while, by all accounts, his manager, Lou Boudreaux, was very welcoming by, by all accounts, not all the members of his own team were so inviting. Now, recounting his first game, Dobie said, I walked down that line, I stuck out my hand, and very few hands came back in return. Most of the ones that did were cold fish handshakes, along with a look that said, you don't belong here. Do Four of Dobie's teammates did not shake his hand accordingly, and of those, two actually turned their backs to Dobie when he tried to introduce himself. Just, I, I can't even imagine that's would not obviously happen today. Now, not all the players turned their backs, though. As second baseman Joe Gordon and Larry Doby would strike up a fast friendship that likely helped Doby through the tougher times in those early years when Doby was asked to step in at first base in his uh, first game, there were stories that he had to borrow a mitt from the opposing team because his own team wouldn't lend him one. It was just insane. It wasn't any easier publicly either as famed although i have a much cruder word for him baseball great roger hornsby said in an interview about doby bill veck did the negro race no favor when he signed larry doby to a cleveland contract if veck wanted to demonstrate that the negro had no place in major league baseball he could have used no subtler means to establish the point if you're a white he wouldn't be considered good enough to play with a semi-pro club he's fast on his feet but that lets him out he hasn't any other quality that could possibly recommend him. That's coming from Roger Hornsby, and that was being said publicly. Now, it's well known Roger Hornsby was what my grandmother used to call a horse patoot. But again, I use a meaner word in my head. But Nick tells me I still can't swear, even though sometimes some of these players and their actions make me want to. It couldn't have been easy for Doby to see these statements publicly, especially while Robinson was finding success 
pretty quickly over in the National League. He survived that first year, though, and slowly and surely, Doby was able to focus as much on the ball field as he was at the external forces that were working against him. Now, through all this, Vec was supportive the entire way, including the following year, getting rid of five players who were quote-unquote discourteous to Doby and doing his best to essentially become a second father to Doby. They would become lifelong friends and had a bit of a father-son relationship throughout the rest of their lives. Now, perhaps feeling more secure in the team or, or more welcome or simply less green, Doby takes off in his first full season in the league. Boudreaux had handled him his had handed him his first full-time job in the outfield, and he had been taken under the wing of several notable coaches of front office personnel in the organization, including Hall of Famer Tris Speaker and Indians Farm Sister Director Hank Greenberg, who you might remember from the episode I did on Hank Greenberg, might have known a thing or two about surviving in baseball under hostile conditions as a Jewish man playing right around the time of less than welcoming circumstances for the Jewish people in America. And it even may have had to do with Cleveland adding even more black players to the roster, including Negro League legend and number two player on this very podcast's all-time list, Satchel Paige, as well as Minnie Minoso. And Doby, for his part, was fantastic in 1948, hitting 301 across 121 games with a 384 OBP and an 873 OPS, which is good for a 135 OPS plus to go along with 14 home runs, 23 doubles, 66 RBIs, and 83 runs scored at the tender age of 24. This wasn't just a big year for Doby, though, as Cleveland ended up winning 97 games and making the playoffs for the first time since 1920. Now, there was big contributions across the board. Doby's good friend Joe Gordon hit 32 home runs. Bob Feller, Bob Lemon, and Gene Bearden combined for 59 wins and nearly 400 strikeouts. It was just a huge year for for this up-and-coming team. And you need to remember at this point, I know I've brought this up before, but there really weren't the playoffs, per se. You simply had the best record in your league, and then you went to the World Series. That was it. Best record in the AL, played the best record in the NL. Done. So not only was Cleveland in the playoffs for the first time since Woodrow Wilson was president, but they were in the World Series for just the second time in team history. Heck, not only did they make it, they'd win the whole darn thing in just seven games. And and Doby wasn't without his own heroics, when in Game 4, he became the first black man to homer in in a Major League uh, Baseball World Series game, when he launched a crucial blast to secure a 2-1 win for Cleveland in Game 4 and give them a 3 games to 1 lead. Now, after the game, a photograph was taken of Cleveland starting pitcher Steve Gromick embracing Doby with an enormous smile on his face. And to this day, it is one of the most iconic images in baseball history, showing a real and intimate moment that change was underway in baseball and amongst the team. Of the picture, Doby said, The picture was more rewarding and happy for me than actually hitting the home run. The picture finally showed a moment of a man showing his feelings for me, which just, it just says it all of what he was going through and the the importance of the image. And growing up in Cleveland, I saw this photo everywhere. You'd see it in the newspaper. You'd see it in all, you know, different write-ups about the team and things like that. I saw it in bars. Cleveland's a Midwest town where you see sports photos hung up in bars and, So I had seen it a lot when I was growing up in my youth. And I never really obviously felt the significance because I was a child eating French fries on fish fry Sundays during Lent. I really didn't get it. But to come back and see that photo and see what it really meant and stood for, it's incredible to see its impact and really understand it now. 1948 was just the start for Doby as he would make a huge leap in terms of power hitting. He hit 24 home runs to go along with a 280 batting average, 389 OBP, and an 857 OPS, which is good for a 128 OPS plus to go along with 25 doubles, 85 RBIs, and a 106 runs scored. He's named his first MLB All-Star game, which along with Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, and Don Newcomb made Doby amongst the first black men to play in an MLB All-Star game. He was worth a 3.8 war that year, and he, after this, wouldn't have a war total below this mark until 1955. 
Cleveland finished with the third best record in the AL with 89 wins. But again, only one team made the World Series at the time. And the Yankees would win 97 games that year, keeping Cleveland from a repeat run to the series despite a very good year. Now, Dobie wasn't done there, though, as 1950 would see Dobie reach even higher heights. The power stuck around as he hit 25 home runs and 25 doubles along with a career-high 326 average while leading the league in OBP with a 442 mark and an OPS with a 986 mark, which is good for a league-leading 156 OPS+. In addition, he managed 102 RBIs and 110 runs scored. He was an all-star again while being worth 6.7 war, including a league-leading 6.2 offensive war. He finished 8th in MVP voting, despite finishing just 0.1 war behind the winner, Phil. Rizzuto was a much better defender than Dobie that year, but I think it's worth noting, Dobie hit 18 more home runs than Rizzuto, had 40 more RBIs, and scored just 15 fewer runs while beating him in average, OBP, and OPS. In my opinion, Dobie absolutely should have won MVP that year. And you really have to wonder how much race may have played a role in that. Let's be real, almost assuredly did, given the time period. But it also did, who knows, because I mean, Jackie had also won a, an MVP, he had just won one, I'm not sure, but it probably definitely played a role. But also didn't help Rizzuto played for the Yankees, who once again would win 98 games and win the World Series in dominating fashion, and was basically the most popular baseball team, maybe ever. <laughs> um, and like I said, Dobie, in my opinion, absolutely should have won it. At the very least, because there's an interesting question of, obviously, like I said, Rizzuto was a better defender, but that that 6.2 offensive war, like, you have to, that just probably had, a, in my opinion, a greater impact on his team winning, most likely, than Rizzuto did. Especially, for the record, Dobie did it while playing center field, which, I believe Rizzuto was, I think, a second baseman. And again, I just, I think Dobie should have won it here. At the very least, he should have finished closer than eighth, especially since you really couldn't hold the team's record against them. It's not like the Indians were bad that year. They won 92 games that year, so you can't hold that against them. And for the record, by the way, they won 92 games. The wild part of all that is they finished fourth that year. It makes the perfect argument for divisions, right, And in the current playoff format, as much as sometimes we complain about it. When you see a team win 92 games and not get anything for it, it seems crazy, right? 1951 saw Dobie's season as business as usual. He hit 295 with a 428 OBP and a 941 OPS, which is good for a 160 OPS plus to go along 20 home runs, 27 doubles, 69 RBIs, and 84 runs scored across 134 games played. Multiple reports stated that Dobie battled multiple leg injuries that season, which would certainly help explain the slight drop in his power numbers. And that, but this is actually where like numbers like OPS really come in handy because Cleveland actually tried and cut his salary because they felt like his power numbers had dropped and, and like going through it. At first glance, sure. But then you look at his OPS and there wasn't really a noticeable drop in his OPS. What, in 1951, he had a 941 OPS. I think he had like a 9, what, a 986 mark. So sure, it's 40 points lower, but still a 941 OPS, which is incredible. You're not talking about like he dropped in the 800s in, in OPS or anything like that. And in fact, by OPS Plus, he was actually better in 1951 than 1950s. It's one of these fascinating things where this is really a great example of how advanced statistics, and then let's be fair, OPS at this point isn't even that advanced of a statistic, um, nor really probably is OPS Plus anymore by today's standards. They really do give that extra context to really help us view statistics and, and history better than we did before. Now, a war actually supports the idea that his 1951 season was on par, as he basically repeated the previous year's uh, value with a fantastic 6.4 mark, if you remember, he 6.7 the year before. Now, Yogi Berra would win the MVP award with a mere 5.3 war, and I've complained about this season before, and I've talked about this MVP race before, because Ted Williams absolutely should have won it that year with a 7.1 war mark, which led the league. But Dobie certainly had an argument for at least finishing in the top three. Instead, he received zero MVP votes, which is insane to me. Again, you have to wonder if race and, frankly, Yankee love came into play here as well. But even Minnie Minoso got a vote, and he was a full game, full one war behind him. 
So I just don't understand why Doby got like literally zero MVP votes that year. And I could see maybe the only really logical argument see is that the most likely reason would lie in his games played. He played a f- fewer games than, than his peers that, that got MVP votes. And maybe that that's where it was, but maybe that's also giving them too much credit for the time period. And also, war wasn't really a thing back then, obviously in any way, shape, or form. So perhaps they saw the home run numbers drop and didn't realize he actually maintained his value, at least to give them some benefit of the doubt. Either way, he deserved at least some votes. And again, it certainly wasn't Cleveland's record that hurt his chances, as they would approve upon last season with 93 wins and would finish second in the American League behind the Yankees yet again. And side note on the Yankees, just to allow me to vent here for a second, the Yankees get all this credit for all the World Series as they win. And they get, the Yankees love telling you about it, first off. Yankees fans love telling you about it, especially in these this, this run here in the 1950s and in the 1960s that, oh, the greatest team to ever play and blah, 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 and all those things. I'm going to make a statement. I think it's harder to win a World Series now than it was then. Not just because so many of these happened. Obviously, this is post-integration. I have a tendency to knock anything happen pre-integration. This is before the league really even probably fully, you know, was integrated. But then you throw in, you only have to win one series to win a World Series. And yeah, don't get me wrong, it's an, it's an achievement to, to have the best record in, in baseball. But then to go through, you look at a team now, and a lot of them have to win three series to win a World Series. That's, in my opinion, harder because luck plays into it a lot less, right? Like you have to, you can get lucky in one series and then get knocked down the next one. You have to win three series. And I, I'm not going to say it for me puts an asterisk on... Uh, on all these Yankees World Series titles and things like that, because they still won and they still have to do it. But it's just, I, I look at so many World Series, even probably Cleveland's World Series from this time period. And in my opinion, I would even take the World Series that, that Cleveland lost in, say, 2016, 1997, 1995, and consider them more impressive necessarily than winning a World Series when all you had to do was win one series. Again, there's something to be said for having to have the best record in baseball and all that good stuff. It just is an interesting anecdote. I'd be curious. I Like I said, I don't discount them. I just view them differently. That's all, I guess, is really what I'm trying to say. Anyways, on to 1952 and what would be a career year for Dobie, who by now was a Cleveland icon. His average plummeted down to 276 with a 383 OBP, but his power numbers soared as he would hit 32 home runs with 26 doubles and 104 RBIs while leading the American League in runs scored with 104 and an OPS plus with a career-high 163 mark thanks to a 924 OPS. And he led all of Major League Baseball with a 541 slugging percentage as well. And he's named an all-star for the fourth year in a row. And somehow, despite leading the American League in war with a career-high seven war, he finishes 12th in MVP voting. 12th is insane. I understand why Bobby Shantz won it with 9.4 war. But he is a pitcher. And if you're one of those folks who thinks pitchers shouldn't win the MVP, I'm one of them, I will admit. That's why we have Cy Young Awards and things like that. Then... Doby led all hitters in war and should have won that. Again, I think also hitters, since they have to play every day, are more valuable uh, when it comes to the MVP award. So they have a bigger impact on day-to-day playing. And I think Doby should, absolutely should have. This should have been Larry Doby's second MVP award. I have no doubts about that. It's absolutely what should have happened. He outperforms Mickey Mantle that year, Al Rose in that year, yet both received more votes. He finished 12th in MVP voting while leading all hitters in in war. I just don't get it. And I think, I mean, I tend to harp on MVP awards and get frustrated with them a lot. But we remember Jackie Robinson. We remember his MVP award. Because it went a long way to legitimizing his cause and his impact on the sport. And in many ways, history has not remembered Larry Doby the same way. And I think I've made the argument that Doby should have won at least one MVP, if not two MVPs at this point. And you have to wonder what sort of impact that would have had and how we write about his legacy and his place 
that he has within telling the story of baseball. So that's why I get frustrated about it, is it changes how we talk about him, how we remember him, and that's just the way I feel about it. Now, either way, leading the league in war as a center fielder and finishing 12th in, in the voting is, is a genuine travesty, and we should feel bad about it. Uh, now, Cleveland's playoff drought will last two more years. As for the second time in a row, they would win 93 games and finish just out of reach of the New York Yankees. 1953 would be a rinse and repeat year for Dobie, as he would hit another 29 home runs to go along with a 385 OBP and an 873 OPS, which is good for a 137 OPS plus, to go along with 29 home runs, 18 doubles, 102 RBIs, and 92 runs scored. He's an all-star for the fifth year in a row and was worth 4.2 war. Even though he was uh, just 29 now, he was in his 11th year of professional baseball. And remember, he skipped the minors, so the years were catching up to him somewhat. And the major trade-off at this point was average for power. In a couple years, that would reverse itself. As he aged, he would trade power for average. But we aren't quite there yet. And Cleveland would return its run would continue its run I should say as the number one not the Yankees team in the American League as they win 92 games this time and finish second in the American League yet again and again this is one of those things where I I wonder how things have been different with the playoff format because with the Bob Feller Bob Lemon combo those are two of the best pitchers of that era you have to think that those these Cleveland teams were certainly well built for a modern playoff series and you have to wonder if the modern format had existed at the time, how many more World Series this team could have made rather than just being stuck in second place for half a decade. And that had to be frustrating for this team and for the fans and for really everyone but the Yankees. But little did they know that all that was about to change in 1954. Now, Dobie and the rest of the Cleveland squad was fantastic in the 1954 season. For his part, Dobie is awesome hitting 272 with a 364 OBP and an 847 OPS to go along with leading the American League in home runs and RBIs with 32 and 126 respectively, while also chipping in 18 doubles and 94 runs scored. He's named an All-Star again, and this year it was particularly important for a couple reasons. First, the game was being played in Cleveland that year, and second, he would crush a game-tying home run the bottom of the eighth inning, which made him the first black man to hit a home run in an All-Star game. It was fitting that this Cinderella season had the All-Star game in Cleveland and was widely considered one of the greatest All-Star games ever. It ended at 11-9 in favor of the American League. But Cleveland itself was incredible all year long. For one year, they were done living in the Yankees' shadow, and they would win a what I believe is still a team record, 111 games, dominating the American League, winning it by eight games, and heading back to the World Series. For his part, Dobie would finish second in the MVP voting once again to Yogi Berra. Berra again had just 5.3 war, which was far less than Dobie, Mantle, Ted Williams, and especially Minnie Minoso, who led the league with 8.2 war. Someday we'll get to Berra on this pod, and I'll actually figure out how Yogi Berra won all these MVPs. For now, just let me state again that it's highway robbery, and... I just don't understand it, but probably still, again, had a lot to do with the Yankees and their popularity. But And Yogi Berra is an insanely popular player, but I mean, just we can see the numbers, and he was nowhere near the most valuable player in, in the league that year. Maybe it's a, maybe the MVP, my MVP line has to be a joint Juan Gonzalez-Yogi Berra MVP robbery award here. But, but anyways, Cleveland wins 111 games. They go to the World Series uh, for just the third time in their history. And unfortunately, winning 111 games really took it out of them. They just ran out of gas once they got there. And the Cinderella story came to a screeching halt. And Cleveland would lose the series in a sweep against the Giants. Now, everyone on Cleveland would struggle in the series. And Dobie would struggle just like the rest of the squad. He would manage just two hits in the series. And unfortunately, this would be the last time he would see the World Series in his career. But it was a heck of a season. One that lives forever in the Cleveland history books is probably the best team in its history. It's really this team, 
1948 squad or one of the teams from the 90s, most likely. But this one's right up there. It, it, it's certainly probably top three squad. Again, 111 games. It ain't nothing, that's for sure. Uh-huh. Now, heading into 1955, we would see what would end up being Doby's last full season in Cleveland. He played in just 131 games, and he had a good season. He hits 291 with a 369 OBP and an 874 OPS, which is good for a 130 OPS plus. He hits 26 home runs with 75 RBIs, 91 runs scored, 17 doubles. But the thing was, at this point, I mentioned a few years earlier that he was struggling with leg injuries, and he really struggled with them throughout his whole career, but so far they had not really hampered him too thoroughly. But now he's 31, and all those leg injuries just start to add up. And they hamper him all season long. And, and to a certain degree, I think the writing was on the wall that this was probably the beginning of the decline, uh, from at least from Cleveland's perspective, right? Doby would still have a, a couple really good seasons in him here, but it just wasn't quite the same. And, and they, they carried a lot of injury concerns. In fact, he would not play uh, 151 games in a season really ever again in the rest of his career. He is traded at the end of the season in, in at the end of October. <laughs> For the, this is another one where you're like, this would never happen again today because the, the trade deadline so much earlier in the year, but he's traded at the very end of October to the Chicago White Sox. Again, also something you would never see. You never see, since it's before divisions, right? You would never nowadays see a trade between two division rivals. But because divisions didn't exist yet, they, they, they were willing to make this move. So he goes over to the White Sox, who have been looking for a slugger for quite some time, and were ecstatic to get Doby. Overall, Doby, as I mentioned, it's a bit of a down year. He's only worth 3.7 war, probably in a large chunk because of those games played numbers. He had 5.7 war the year before, obviously a full two war drop in value, but he was still a good, solid player, and again, Chicago was happy to to get him. Now, Chicago would finish in third place in the American League that year, winning 85 games. They were a team looking more to make the push up. Doby was solid for the White Sox in 1956, hitting 268 with 24 home runs, 392 OBP, and 858 OPS, which is good for a 126 OPS+. Plus. With 22 doubles, 102 RBIs, and 89 runs scored. This is really Doby's final great power season. As we mentioned again, the legs just started to really to give. And when he headed into 1957 with the White Sox, you could see him start to trade that power for average. He started hitting more doubles. He'd end up hitting 288 in the 1957 season with 27 doubles, 14 home runs, just 79 RBIs and 57 runs scored. The White Sox had a great season. They finished second in the American League, winning 90 games. But the unfortunate writing was on the wall in that with his declining power and with his legs giving him so much trouble that Doby wasn't quite the power hitter that they were looking for. And so in the offseason uh, after 1957, he's actually traded to the Baltimore Orioles. And then in spring training with the Orioles, the, this is now in 1958, he's traded back to Cleveland. And he would appear in 89 games for Cleveland that season and had a 289 batting average with 13 home runs and 45 RBIs. And then he would not stay there particularly long. Because then in 1959, he would be traded to the Detroit Tigers in a fascinating trade for, of all people, Tito, Fran- Tito Francona <laughs> in, in a bit of a small world there. And this would end up coming full circle because then Tito would play for, for Cleveland and would instill into his son a lifelong love for that for the Cleveland Ball Club, who he would then come to manage and probably become the best manager in their history. Now he would hit. At, uh, now he's 35 years old at this point, and he would hit 218 with just four RBIs for the Tigers before they would sell him back over to the White Sox. He plays for 21 games for the White Sox um, before being sent down to AAA. And while playing down there, he actually fractures his ankle while sliding into third base, 
and he ended up the, the really was the, the end of it for Adobe. Uh, he tries that ends the season and then he tries working out with the the White Sox before the 1960 season, but he just I mean he just couldn't do it anymore. The injuries were just too much. He ends up not earning a roster spot and he, he bounced around he tries playing in the International League, but he just at some point from the way the story goes, they he was playing for a team called the Toronto Maple Leafs of all things, which is confusing. The first I thought he suddenly played hockey, but the in X-ray of his ankle showed massive bone deterioration in his ankle, likely uh, sort of an accumulation of all of those ankle injuries, and with that, Dobie would retire. Now, this wasn't the end of Dobie's career in baseball. He would actually, first off, he'd go play in 1962. He would go. He would go play in the Nippon leagues for one season. He'd go over and play in Japan along with Don Newcomb. He would play there for one season. He would play first base and right field. He batted two twenty five with ten home runs in two hundred forty at bats. That was the only year he would play over in ba- in Japan. But he was one of the first players to do so. One of the first Americans to do a bit of a groundbreaker there as well. Now, finally, after that, he does retire as a player. And continues to work in baseball. He becomes a scout for the Montreal Expos. And he even ends up making as far as their minor as a minor league instructor for them. He he serves for various teams as their batting coaches, and eventually gets hired by of all people Bill Vec, who had just purchased the White Sox. This is in 1976. He makes Doby the team's batting coach in 1976, and eventually would make him the manager, which makes him just the second black manager in the history of baseball behind Frank Robinson, who would be the first black manager for for Cleveland, actually, of all places. Now, Doby's managing career is is spotty. He does okay. He's basically around a 500 manager, but basically there was a lot of talk about friction. He just didn't quite connect with the players in the way that they wanted to. And so that would be the only season in which in which Doby would serve as the manager. But he did continue on through various positions with the White Sox and working for VAC for most of the rest of his career. He eventually would, would retire completely from baseball in the 1980s, but would then go to work in basketball, actually working for the New Jersey Nets, and then would continue doing that all the way up until 1990. In 1998, the Veterans Committee of the Hall of Fame would elect Larry Doby to the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and Doby was quoted as saying, this is just a tremendous feeling, it's like a bale of cotton has been on your shoulders and now it's off, and it really seemed to solidify his legacy and his place in the game. Doby would consider rece- would continue, I should say, receiving honors throughout the rest of his life, even post-retirement from baseball, including a congressional gold medal for his contributions to African Americans in in America. Uh, and he, this would continue up until his death in in 2003 from cancer. So that is the life and career of Cleveland legend Larry Doby. But he was so much more than that. And his impact on the cause of solidifying African Americans' place in Major League Baseball is absolutely unassailable. Sure, he's not Spartacus, but he's important nonetheless, and an essential piece of taking Jackie Robinson's heroic breaking of the color barrier and gave it momentum. And that's important too. It would be utterly impossible to tell the story of baseball in America without including Larry Doby's story. And with that in mind, Let's take our last break, and then when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about Larry Doby and then rank him on our big old list. Welcome back. I don't really think we need to debate whether or not Larry Doby is a Hall of Fame worthy. I get if you want to argue on the basis of, say, overall war or something like that, but this is beyond that. You can't look at the cultural contributions of Larry Doby and how good of a hitter he was compared to his generation and not, and say he wasn't a Hall of Famer. That's just, it's not debatable. It really isn't. So I don't even think we need to really discuss it all that much. He's a surefire, no doubt, Hall of Famer. But the real question is, what about the list? 
What list did you say? Don't be coy, dear listener. Unless this is your first episode, then you know all about The List, where I rank every player I've talked about based on a somewhat subjective criteria that is a mix of statistics and storytelling with a healthy dash of the character clause thrown in there. Now, really quickly, let's revisit The List, which you can see in its entirety, by the way, via a link that you'll see in the show notes. But to start off The List, we'll do the top 20 Number one is Sadaharu O. Number two is Satchel Page. Number three is Ted Williams. Number four is Josh Gibson. Number five is Barry Bonds. Number six is Mickey Mantle. Number seven is Greg Maddox. Number eight is Mike Trout. Number nine is Ricky Henderson. Number 10 is Ken Griffey Jr. Number 11 is Ichiro. Number 12 is George Brett. Number 13 is Adrian Beltre. Number 14 is Shohei Otani. Number 15 is Clayton Kershaw. Number 16 is Eddie Murray. 17 is Edgar Martinez, number 18 is Sandy Koufax, number 19 is Tony Gwen, and number 20 is Hank Greenberg. Now jumping down to number 25 is Joey Votto, number 30 is Addie Josh, number 35 is Bryce Harper, number 40 is Jose Ramirez, number 45 is Mo Vaughn, number 50 is Ronald Acuna Jr., number 55 is Jamie Moyer, number 60 is Whitey Ford, Number 65 is Jose Bautista. Number 70 is Dottie Schrader. Number 75 is Robin Ventura. Number 80 is Mark Pryor. And number 81, the last player on the list, is James Paxton. Okay, so the question of where Dobie sits on this list, I think we can safely say he is well within the top 30. We start scrolling up and just thinking of looking at his war numbers with 56.8 it reminds me an awful lot of a player on this list and that is Nolan Arenado at number 24 I think we can safely say that Dobie sits ahead of Arenado even if all things are considered and Arenado's right there in the mid 50s as well with in terms of war numbers who's considered one of the greatest defensive third baseman of all time they're actually pretty darn close in home run numbers I think I mentioned Dobie's at 273, where Arnado is, I think, somewhere on 320, 325. So he's not like, he's got 50 home runs more than him, but not a significant amount. And then you throw in, he doesn't quite get the same third base bonus because Dobie was a center fielder. And then you throw in as well that all the cultural stuff. And I think Dobie easily goes ahead of, of Nolan Arnado. Looking at number 23, we then have Todd Helton, who's right ahead of Nolan Arenado and was last week's, last episode's subject. And I think a lot of it we talked about is this kind of like Arenado, Todd Helton, Brooks Robinson group is the same, all the same player. And so I think if we're going to put Dobie ahead of Arenado, he probably also goes ahead of Helton and goes ahead of Brooks Robinson. That brings us to number 21, which is Miguel Cabrera. Now, obviously, Cabrera had played for a lot longer and has far more home runs and, and probably, in a lot of ways, better overall numbers. But it's actually really interesting. If you start looking at, for instance, Miguel Cabrera had a career, 140 OPS plus, the exact same as Larry Doby. And, and obviously, he has more. He only has about eight more war than, than Doby. And then you throw in a lot of Cabrera's sort of... Because he's got the two MVPs, he's got the triple crown. But then you throw in some of the detractors when you throw in his difficulties with alcohol. And you throw in the potential assault issues. And there comes to a place where you say, I, I think, if nothing else, again, the cultural aspect of what Larry Doby meant to baseball puts him ahead of Miguel Cabrera here. Which brings him up to number 20 at Hank Greenberg. This is a tough one for me. Both Greenberg and Dobie have the issue where they both lost a significant amount of time, both of them to World War II and serving in the military. And then also sort of being going through much of the same things in life, Greenberg being uh, attacked for his Judaism and obviously Dobie for being African-American. But at no point, and this is where the cultural part comes in, because as I mentioned, you know, while Greenberg has two... MVPs, and is one of the greatest hitters to ever play the game. Doby should have won at least one, if not two MVPs. And I think when you look at what's fascinating is if you look at 
Greenberg's numbers, right, they're actually remarkably similar. Greenberg has only 331 home runs. He would have gotten a 400 if he hadn't lost all those years with the military. And he's a 159 OPS plus with 55.4 war. So he would have uh, outdone Dobie in there. Again, you're talking Dobie probably would have had mid-60s in war as well. So they're basically even players. It's just Greenberg has those two MVPs. And here's what I'm going to say is, Greenberg, obviously, I would never want to diminish what Greenberg went through as a player and and sort of the abuse and things that he had to overcome. He was never banned from playing baseball in a way that I think that there's, again, a a cultural pedestal that's just a little bit higher for Dobie, considering they're pretty similar players otherwise. So while I will admit I think Greenberg is probably the better hitter, I think that I think that at some point, Dobie matters more in, in a lot of ways to the story of baseball. So I, I, th- I think, I'm not, I don't feel great about this one. I'm torn. Also, Greenberg only played 13 seasons. So Dobie even played, well, that's about the same. They basically played the same amount um, in there. I'm torn on this one. I you could, This could be a, a half dozen pick them, whichever way you want to go. But I think for cultural significance, I think, I think Greenberg was probably the better player. I think Larry Doby matters more to the story of baseball. Then we get into Tony Gwen, who is number 19 here. And this is another interesting one. Uh, Gwen obviously played for a lot longer and has certain achievements. He's a 15-time All-Star. He won five gold gloves, seven silver sluggers, eight batting titles. He's also a Hall of Famer. When he's got almost double the hits, he's got 3,000 hits. He's got almost 70 war, so it's almost 20 war higher than than Dobie. This is an interesting one because on a cultural level, outside of maybe being one of the most important Padres to ever play the game and playing 20 years for the Padres, like essentially Tony Gwen gets to do what he does because of Larry Dobie. But, but at the same time, Gwen... Gwen probably accomplished close to the same amount. You know, I mean, it's just a question of how much do I value the, that cultural impact for Dobie. And eventually we'll run into a place where that can only take him so far. Where at some point we're going to go, this guy was a better player. What's interesting is Gwen, who was not a great defender for a large chunk of his career, was a great defender for some of it, but not for all of it. With 4.6 war per year, right? Dobie, let's see what Dobie is worth. This might be kind of what sways me here. One or the other. Dobie was worth 5.5 war per year. Their peaks are, let's see, 39.4 for a seven-year peak, 31, 41.3, so very similar there. Gwen's at 55.2 jaws. See, 48.1 jaws for Dobie. Oh, this is a tough one, too. I think, again, you throw those two things together, and while Gwen probably, again, was probably the better player in the long run, I think... I, I think that, that, that Dobie's probably more important, especially when Gwen doesn't quite have the MVPs or things like that to, to put him over the top. That puts him right up until Sandy Koufax. And this is where it gets tough. Koufax is a lot of the cultural stuff. He's one of the most significant Jewish players to ever play the game, despite what Koufax would want, <laughs> probably in a lot of ways. Koufax is a very reluctant icon that way. But here's where we start to get into, I mean, Koufax won three Cy Youngs and an MVP. He's probably, if it's not Kershaw up ahead of him, Koufax is the greatest left-hander to ever play the game. This is, these are all tough because of, I I don't want to shortchange what Dobie was able to accomplish and what he represents for African-Americans in baseball. I I think culture really matters to me here, the cultural impact, but he's a two-time World Series MVP, won the ERA title five times, he's a seven-time All-Star won the triple crown three times. I think this is right where we start to say, like I said, there was a line in which we could say performance outweighs some of that in terms of the all-time list. And that's not to negate or diminish what what Dobie was able to do. But at some point, his career was a little shorter. He wasn't quite able to accomplish some of those things that Koufax was able to. So for me, I think... This is a good spot for him now. Maybe we'll revisit and we'll uh, adjust that. But I think for now, 
Larry Doby comes in as the new number 19 in this list, right behind Sandy Koufax and just in front of Tony Gwen. So that's our episode. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining me here today. This is an important one for me. I grew up hearing about Larry Doby all the time. Just in Cleveland, he is an icon. And I feel like it was jarring for me when I then go elsewhere and never hear him talked about. And I, I, I just this was a this was an important one for me to bring out there and get out there and have people learn more about Larry Doby and his contributions and what he went through and, and things like that. And, and hopefully we start to talk more about him and, and give him more of the the credit and respect historically that he deserves. So thank you so much for joining me for this week on Long Ball Legacies. I shall see you again in two more weeks. We'll see. We're not. We'll be just barely out of Black History Month, but that shouldn't stop us. Maybe we'll revisit another player in in that sort of historical vein that we want to talk about, or we might jump back into our our retiree discussion as more and more players have retired. Maybe we'll talk about Joe Maurer, who just got elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. We're going to get there eventually, either way. So I'm not sure who we'll talk about in the next episode, but I will see you in two weeks. Until then, it's been a snowy day here. We got closer to in here in Denver, so I'm staying inside. But hopefully it's nice where you are, or you get to enjoy your day and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you so much, folks. I'll talk to you in two weeks. <laughs>